The first meaning to the shield of faith that we have laid out is like a stone rolled in the place of the sepulcher. And we, em- we emphasized in that the condition of death and the standing up of Christ in the environment of death and His standing up coming with all of the power and the authority in the seven characteristics of the Spirit of God. So it's life, the life we have, uh, as, as is said in Romans 8, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who gave Christ life from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies by His Spirit who dwells within you. So the concept of a new creation is more than just the term new creation. It really is a life definitively sustained by these seven economies of grace that come intrinsically in the Holy Spirit. In other words, whenever the Holy Spirit comes, comes into you, comes into your environment, He comes with seven characteristics. So uh, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead living in you, giving life to you, that life may be defined in the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit whose life it is at work within you. This is the life that the Son has in Himself that He gives to whomever He wills. So that's the thrust of viewing the shield of faith from the standpoint of empowerment, that it is the manner in which the working of His mighty strength, uh, which was promised in the early chapter, first chapter of Ephesians, becomes fungible, becomes actually functional and definable in terms of the seven characteristics. But the word shield, just to remind you, uh, shield of faith, is the word thurios, which also means a door, a door, a door. That's one of the meanings. The stone in front of the sepulchre or a door. Now here's what Jesus has to say about this door. And this is, it's, it builds upon the concept of immunity through tatimi, through lying down as if you were dead and Him standing up in you. So it's, it's a corollary but it has a different emphasis that it's necessary to know about. Jesus speaking in John 10, the Gospel of John chapter 10 says, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever come before, whoever came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. 
if anyone enters by me, enters through me, by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. When the 23rd Psalm addresses this, it describes the pastures, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restoreth my soul. He leads me into paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. In this representation of the door by which, and in this case for our purposes, by whom we enter, the question is, into what do we actually enter? And why is Christ the necessary door? of entrance. Ah, and what, why is the condition defined as pasture? Pasture, finding food and to extend it into the 23rd Psalm, both food and water. Well, food and water represent an economy that applies to both the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man may be described, the, 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 the food of the natural man, the pasture, if you like, because he's not talking here about sheep. Uh, four-legged creatures, he's talking about people, people in a relationship who may find food and drink. Well, Jesus defined the food that He had to give and the drink He had to, to give in terms of, my food is to do the will of God, the fuel, the energy, the desire, to do the will of God. This speaks to an economy that I have characterized as the economy of the seventh day as opposed to the economy of the sixth day. It's understanding life and the supply of life, supply of all things necessary for life from a position of rest in God, in God. The example of this, of course, is early in the book of Genesis where two brothers are approaching the, the, the altar of the Lord which would depict the presence of the Lord. 
We're not talking yet about how we enter, but just what it is that we, we have access to upon entering. We'll come back and talk about how we enter and why is Christ the door of entrance. We're talking about what it is we enter and we're seeing that it's an economy designed to supply the spirit and the body, the natural and the spiritual components of mankind. But it's an environment of divine providence. It's an environment in which God Himself is is encountered. Jesus is the access, as He Himself has said, to the Father. When He speaks of this analogy in a little bit different fashion, speaking of the way, I'm the way, the truth, the life, uh, no man comes to the Father. It's a condition that positions us relative to the Father. Again, I'm not yet speaking of what, how you define that condition. Of course, it is the condition of sonship. But it introduces us to a totally different economy and it's an economy sufficient for, and contain, that contains everything necessary for life and godliness, food and drink. My meat is to do the will of God. And if I, if, and to the woman at the well, he said, Woman, if you knew who asked you for water, natural water, you would ask him for the water that springs up into eternal life. The kind, for example, that a man uses to wash his wife with the water of the word, the kind that is relevant to one who is born again, born of water and of the Spirit, speaking to the symbolic burial and the resurrection into a new creation, the Word of God coming forth that delivers us from the darkness, that restores our understanding of these ancient things lost so long ago things that should have been the custody of the church to be properly and timely distributed like broken bread and fish to feed the household of God and to nourish them that they might stand in the earth as actual representations of the living God, things that have been long held back and denied by careless handlers of God's resources. In the economy of the sixth day, toil is the order of the day. Toil. Toil implicitly speaks to attention the tension that is inherent in an economy where in which a man believes, a person believes that he achieves the supply of his needs by his own effort, by the sweat of his brow. It was the case with Cain. It was the case with Cain. His economy was the sweat 
of his brow, and he offered the fruit of his toil to God. And unsurprisingly, of course, it was rejected. Abel, on the other hand, offered a lamb in type and shadow, Christ, as his entrance into the Father. He offered the blood of the lamb, not anything he could produce, not anything that represented his ingenuity, his toil, his cleverness, his persistence, none of the above. And his was acceptable. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. And it sets up for us, for all time, the tension inherent between these two economies. I think it critically important that when Jesus was facing the cross, one of the, in the crucifixion narrative of Jesus, there are two critically important things that speak of this economy. One was great drops of sweat like blood. And he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Whenever the soul has a moment, it will evince this tension. And if we live in the soul, it will be the constant state of our being, tension versus uh, in regards to our survival. Here we're getting into the nuts and bolts of what this aspect of faith is. When we rely upon what we can do, and even if we convert Scripture to being some magical talisman or some magical chant which when we utter, God has to respond, there's always going to be the tension of the sixth day while we pretend that we are in the seventh day. And it doesn't work it doesn't work. How often do we see immature believers tutored on the falsehood of, quote, working your faith? I mean, isn't that a statement? Faith isn't about the working of anything, but it's common for the proponents of this bizarre doctrine to talk about working your faith. And the truth is, the stress and the tension of that is always upon the the persons who believe that that's the way you access faith. And they're nervous and tense as they wait for God to answer the request that they have made and they've done all the requisite priming of the pump, they've given their offerings to the teachers of their choices, and they're waiting for the fulfillment of what they have presented to God 
by way of their menu of demands. Listen, this has never worked. Why we continue to hope that it does is a mystery to me. Ought to be a mystery to all of us. Cain is the one who stepped out of the seventh day back into the sixth day. And we always do that. We step from the economy of rest, which is in Christ, and I haven't developed that yet. I'm just referring to it here. The economy that is in Christ, we step back into an economy of the sweat of our brow. And there, there, there are two features to that. One, of course, is sweat, toil, indi- indications of tension and pressure. And Jesus sweated in the garden, showing that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. The other is the indication that man had stepped out of the provision of God was in the curse. There were two components to the curse concerning man. One was that by the sweat of his brow he would eat bread, but the other was that the earth would produce thorns and thistles. And the Bible conspicuously references in the same time frame as the sweat of his brow that the next day the soldiers would fashion a crown of thorns crush it down upon his head, piercing his scalp and his brow. What is God telling us? He's telling us that Jesus bore the incidences of the curse, sweat and thorns, to rescue us from both. His sacrifice was in every detail complete. So he is the door by whom we may enter. He bore the consequences of our transgressions beginning with stepping back out of the sixth day, out of the seventh day into the curse of the sixth day which curse is not upon upon man, but the earth, his domain, his inheritance, bore the consequences, even even as man himself would evince the distress of the sweat of his brow. So, How do we avoid this torturous existence of separation from God characterized by the sweat of our brow and our environment replete with thorns? 
as a parenthesis, I want to point out that whenever a land and a people are under great stress, the oppression of governments, for example, the oppression of the ordinary people by governments, the people turn away from the peaceful enterprise of farming to simply surviving. I've been in countries where the land was idle because of the oppression of governments. The country of Cuba comes to my mind as a prime example of this. You can drive down the highways in Cuba and what was once cultivated farmland is now overgrown with a bush that at times is as tall as trees that bears sharp penetrating thorns. It's called marabu, marabu, that's what they call it in Cuba in Spanish. This variety that's covered the land like a curse, thorns and thistles, evincing the tension between working from a place of rest and working in the inherently tense uh, 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 no man's land between toil of the sixth day and rest of the seventh day. Rest doesn't mean you do nothing. Rest means you work from a position of peace because God will stand up in your circumstance and of that there can be no doubt. So what is it then that we enter into? I am the door by me if any man enters in, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, the economy of food and drink. Uh, the reference to, of course, the water of the Word is the refreshing nature of revelation and the uplifting nature of truth as it reminds us of our fallen estate and restores us uh, in light of the hope of His calling and His glorious inheritance in the saints and the working of His mighty power on behalf of those who believe, one of the most prominent, in fact the most prominent demonstration of the working of His mighty power is the shield of faith. So what is it then that we see? What are we to enter into? By me if any man enters into. This is the concept, this is the concept of propitiation, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N, 
propitiation. The Hebrews understood this to be the Ark of the Covenant and it was the box, the box of acacia wood overlaid with beaten gold where the figurines of two cherubims whose wings overlapped and the point of the overlap was called the mercy seat. But the overall principle is the entrance into the presence of the Father and the indispensable access through Christ who is the door. Now the importance of this is when you come through Christ to the Father, you come to a different identity. It's the identity of sonship. By whom you cry, by by the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, you cry out to God, Abba, Father. This is a new identity and one concerning which there is no condemnation possible because you've been excused from the accusations of your enemy and being a new creation, nothing you've done before follows you through death, through the process of death and resurrection to become definitive of who you are as a new creation. So it renders the enemy powerless against you, his weapon being that of the accuser of the brethren. There's nothing of which he may properly accuse you if you are a son of the Father, the entrance to that condition being Christ the door and it's analogous to the box, the box. Now here's how it works, here's how propitiation works. God intended to reconcile man to Himself in the person of Christ. That's from 2 Corinthians 5 I believe, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. So Christ is the box, the container of all those reconciled to God in and through the person of Christ. Now when God views us in as much as we are in Christ, in the corpus of Christ, in the body of Christ. God attributes to us the righteousness of Christ. For Christ had said to the Father in John 17, the glory you gave me I have given to them. Now this is the glory of being allowed to represent the Father, so much so that if The world sees us, it sees Christ. God looking upon Christ does not see the individual Jesus of Nazareth. God looking upon Christ sees the corporate man, the man in the image and likeness of Christ. So when we are included in Christ as access to the Father, we come clothed in Christ we come clothed in Christ. So God attributes to us the same status as Christ. Whatever Christ possesses, God attributes to us. Now, 
But in this condition, God fully intends and has permitted Christ to do this, to apply the standard of Christ to us so that when this process has worked to its fullness, the exact standard of representation that was in the person of Christ now becomes the exact standard to which we have been conformed. We are put in Christ for the express purpose of being conformed to His likeness. So it's in Christ and only in Christ and never apart from Christ that God works in us to will and to do His pleasure as demonstrated in Christ. When the work is done, the Son is the radiance of His Father's glory and each member of the Son, each division or part of the person of Christ becomes mature to the sufficiency of being able to accurately represent the person of the Father in a manner indistinguishable from the representation of the Father in the person of Christ. One of the greatest examples of these is that we love one another as Christ has loved us. It's the fulfillment then of the new command which is the same standard for Christ as it is for the rest of us. Why would it be different? Christ is the exact representation of the Father and we are made into His image and His likeness. Therefore, we love one another when we are mature, not while we are becoming, but when we have become mature, then it's observable that in the greatest and final commandment and indeed the only commandment of the new covenant, that we indeed love one another as Christ has loved us, which you will spot in an instant to be a completely different standard from love one another as you love yourself. The standard is not yourself anymore, the standard is as I, and the person speaking is Christ, as I have loved you. Now, what success does the enemy hope to have against us when we come to the Father through the door who is Christ and have been accorded sonship excused from being judged by anything we did before inasmuch as we have been redeemed at full price and are being conformed to the image of Christ that we might represent the Father in the same fashion in which Christ represented the Father. I'll have a little bit more to say on the door as the shield of faith and then we'll go on to princes, fathers being analogized to doors that grant immunity 
to those under their rule and in their households. I'm Sam Solon. I hope, I sincerely hope, that digging deeper into the armor of God is providing you, genuinely providing you, with new insights, greater insights, into what God laid up in store by way of hidden manna for this day when these are the exact things that are needed and are being brought forth with exuberance and in abundance from the house of God. Uh, my friend Thamo Naidu once said that we will plunder the heavens until everything that was stored up in heaven that was intended to come upon the earth has transitioned from heaven to earth so that the kingdom comes and the will of God is done on the earth as it is in heaven. Uh, that was a brilliant insight that God gave him. And over the years I've had the pleasure of watching how so many, how in so many instances these things have come to pass. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace that is able to build you up and to, and to, to, to fulfill you, to establish you amongst the sanctified. We'll talk more about the shield of faith and finish it up in the ensuing discussions. I'm Sam Solon, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.